Good. All right, Mark chapter 15. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Have you ever seen a picture that changed your life? Uh, It happened to a person in 2016 when they saw a picture by an artist named Kevin Abosh. Forgive me if my pronunciation is wrong. Abosh or Abosh, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to go with Abosh. Kevin is a noted celebrity photographer. That's his normal medium, is portraits of celebrities, and he's really, really gifted at his work. But it was a very different picture of his that sold for the most money he had ever sold a picture for. It was a picture of a potato. When I say this is a picture of a potato, I mean it is a picture of a potato. It's a potato against a black background. doesn't have any glitter on it, no lasers coming out of it, nothing crazy happening. It's not a historically notable potato. It's just a potato against a black backdrop. And he sold that picture for over a million dollars. Why didn't you come up with that idea? A picture of a potato for over a million dollars. Kevin described the picture this way. He said, generally, the life of a harvested potato is violent and taken for granted. I use the potato as a proxy for the ontological study of the human experience. Right. I mean, if you're writing a check for a million bucks, that's the baloney you want to hear about your potato picture. You don't want the guy to say, hmm, it's a potato, that's all I had. <laughs> I ran out of grapefruit. Yeah, you, you want something there. And that's, hey, that's all good. Someone saw the picture, it moved them, impacted their life. They see an ontological metaphor for the human experience in the potato. Good for them, and uh, that's A-OK. Uh, not for me. There's other pictures that have impacted my life, and we're going to look at some of those today. Today we're going to look at some pictures of Jesus. What we study this morning in Mark chapter 15 is a portrait of Jesus in three parts, three different aspects of this one beautiful, amazing portrait of Jesus Christ. And for the last few weeks, we've been walking with Jesus towards the cross. We were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was betrayed by his own disciple, Judas, and arrested by the religious authorities. We were with Jesus at his sham religious trial. You'll remember back in chapter 14 how, just what a mess that trial was and the abuse Jesus suffered during it. Last week, we were with Peter, who while Jesus is being abused and ridiculed by the religious authorities, is outside that very same building denying Jesus. And today, we're going to walk with Jesus to his civil trial. He's had his religious trial. Now he's going to have a civil trial before the Rome-appointed governor over that region, a man named Pontius Pilate. And in this trial, Mark gives us this portrait of Jesus in three different parts. Seeing this picture of Jesus isn't guaranteed to be a life changer. Pilate, after all, he looked at the portrait in front of him and he responded with disbelief, but it could be different for you. Here's the three pictures Mark gives us today. He gives us Jesus as a king, Jesus as the innocent one, and Jesus as the substitute for our salvation. And when you look at the whole of these pictures, what you find is a Savior who loves you deeply and has come to give you new life. 
these pictures of Jesus certainly also place demands on the life of the believer. Knowing Jesus in these ways calls us to think and live in response to them. To call Jesus king is not some negligible thing. It impacts the way we think and the way we live our lives. And so as we study today, I want you to think specifically of the ways in which these pictures of Jesus call you to a different way of living your life. Follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Again, to set the scene, you'll remember Jesus has uh, his religious trial before religious authorities has just finished, and now they're going to transport him to the government authorities. Chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It's a heavy passage. But there is glory light inside this story. I want to show you three pictures of Jesus from this passage. Three pictures that impact our lives. The first picture is this. Jesus is the king who reigns. First picture we get in this story. Jesus is the king who reigns. So our scene opens with the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, bringing Jesus bound to Pilate. And you remember why the religious leaders have to go to Pilate. The reason they have to go to him is because they do not have the power or the authority to execute anyone. Rome holds that power very tightly and does not let it go. They want Jesus dead, and in order for Jesus to be killed, Rome has to sign off. Rome has to do it. Their goal all along has been to get Jesus killed. They're not interested in justice or what's right. They want to preserve their power and shut up this rabble-rouser. So they bring him before Pilate on these trumped-up charges. Now, what do we know about Pontius Pilate? Well, Actually, we know quite a bit. There's a fair amount of historical data outside of the Bible written about Pontius Pilate. Uh, and also some unbelievable archaeological finds that testify to the reality of this man. This isn't a made-up name or a made-up biography. This is a real person who really lived and really was a part of the Roman government. He was a governor 
over two regions. So he's governor over Judea, which is the region that the city of Jerusalem sits in. And then he's the governor over a region to the north of Judea called Samaria. His job is to keep the peace. He is Rome's representative in those areas. And during holiday seasons, like the Passover here in Mark chapter 15, uh, he would have a presence in the city. In fact, there was a fortress, a military fortress, built onto the corner of the temple complex. So Rome always looms large over God's worshiping people. And in holiday seasons, when the people were prone out of nationalistic fervor to riot against their Roman captors, the military presence would increase. Pilate would move from his headquarters on the sea, on the Mediterranean Sea, down to Jerusalem, come with his army in tow, and establish a presence to keep things quiet and calm and at peace. Uh, Pilate has a reputation in history as being inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. He was a man who repeatedly inflicted punishment on people without due process, without trials happening. Uh, He was, in short, a murderous thug. He shed a lot of blood in order to accomplish his job. And it's his brutality that eventually gets him removed from his position. Pilate was a lower-level noble in the world of Roman governors. He's not a, a big power player. And he knows that. The fact that he is a low-level noble means that he has to always keep the big bosses happy. And that's his primary goal, keep the bosses happy to preserve his own skin, his own position, his own small power. Well, on this day, Pilate hears the accusations against Jesus from the Sanhedrin. But he's not going to take their name for it. I mean, Pilate is not much of a sympathizer with Jewish people. And so he has to investigate these things for himself. And so he brings Jesus up and he questions Jesus one-on-one. In verse 2, he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now a quick aside. Mark, in his telling of these events, uh, is the briefest of all four gospel writers. You'll find more details and different details in Matthew's account, in Luke's account, and John's account. It doesn't mean Mark gets it wrong. There's nothing wrong about what Mark shares. Everything he shares aligns with what the other gospel writers tell us. But Mark isn't so concerned with what happened. What I mean by that is he's not concerned with giving us all the little details. He's more concerned with why it happened. And so we have this brief account from Mark, but it is chock full of meaning. So... Pilate asks Jesus in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Now when Pilate asks this question, he's asking a political question. In other words, he wants to know if Jesus has dreams of overthrowing Caesar Tiberius. Is he some sort of a revolutionary? Is he inciting riots? Is he speaking out against the empire or the emperor? That's what he means when he says, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks a political question. Jesus answers the religious question. Look at how Jesus answers in verse 3. Yes, it is as you say. Jesus is not a king 
like Caesar is a king or like anyone on earth is a king. The kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. His kingdom transcends the world. He's a king set apart from every earthly king by an infinite amount. There is no comparison to be had between King Jesus and any king who has ever set foot on this planet. For a human to call himself a king in the presence of Jesus is utterly laughable. It would be like me standing next to Tom Brady and calling myself a quarterback just because I have arms. It's ridiculous. And so it is for Pilate, who has a semblance of power, or Caesar Tiberius, who seems to have all the power, for those men to call themselves kings in comparison to Jesus is just ridiculous. When Jesus stands face-to-face with Pilate, we see this great juxtaposition between earthly power and the rule of Jesus. Pilate has a fortress but Jesus has no place to lay his head. Pilate has an army, but Jesus has been abandoned by everyone. Pilate has wealth. Jesus has only the clothes on his body. Pilate speaks orders from his mouth. Jesus is punched in the mouth. Pilate has whips, and Jesus takes the lashes. Pilate has regalia, and Jesus has a mock purple robe. Pilate has royal headwear. Jesus has a crown of thorns. But don't misunderstand this moment. Jesus is not a victim. This is the hour of his glory. He is the king assuming his throne and transforming death into a passage. And no matter what the world may do to try and stop him, his glory will not be suppressed. Now back in chapter 14... We read about Jesus' religious court trial. I've referenced it a couple of times already. And during that trial, Jesus remained largely silent, except for one point, he answered one question. Do you remember what that question was? He was asked by the high priest Caiaphas, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. Here in his trial before Pilate, Jesus remains largely silent as well, but he answers one question. What's the question? Are you a king, and Jesus says, I am. So in these scenes, Jesus is revealing his identity in full, pulling away the cloak of mystery. He is not denying his identity or covering his identity. With all that he has, he is saying, I am the Christ and I am the king. What are the implications for us if Jesus is our king? Maybe we have some challenges understanding relationship to a king since we live in a representative republic. But for us to call Jesus our king should impact our lives in an infinite number of ways. If Christ is the king, then that means at at the least we should honor him and worship him and revere him and glorify him. My life is lived to honor and exalt the king. It humbles myself. It exalts Jesus. And if Jesus is the king, then he's a king that can be trusted. He's a king that loves his subjects. And so I don't need to come to him with quivering, doubt-filled, fearful prayers. 
I can come in the confidence of the king who loves me. Not some manufactured boldness and confidence that I bring to the table, but I know I've got a king who is for me. I come before his throne with my requests, with my fears, with my doubts. I come with confidence in him. If Jesus is my king, I'm going to be okay. If I've got an earthly king, if Caesar's my king, I'm in big trouble. But if Jesus is my king, I'm going to take that to the pit with me. And I will not be afraid. If Jesus is my king, then I want to serve him. I don't relate to him just as my fix-it man. As if I just come to him to give me what I need and fix things how I want them to be fixed. I come and say, you're the king, I'm your servant. I'm glad to serve you. It's an honor to be in service to the king. And if Jesus is the king, then he gets all my allegiance. All my, not part, he's not one part of many allegiances. Everything I am and have goes to him. My allegiance to King Jesus surpasses and defines every other allegiance in my life. I love my wife right because I love Christ supreme. I love my kids best because I love Christ above all else. Every other way I would identify myself falls under his rulership and his kingship. So we need people who will live in response to the kingship of Jesus Christ. We need teenagers who will live in the reality that Jesus is their king And so they hold fast to Jesus, although nearly every other voice in their life tells them not to. It takes a bold teenager to walk in that spiritual integrity and courage when every other voice says it's ridiculous. We need men who will humbly honor Jesus in front of their families. We need husbands who will love their wives as King Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. We need women who will trust Jesus boldly. Moms whose allegiance is first to Jesus so they can love their kids right. Wives who don't compete with their husbands but worship the king with them. We need people whose lives reflect the truth that Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. It changes the way we live. That's a big picture. Mark gives us another picture of Jesus in this story. Not only is he the king who reigns, but Jesus is the innocent one who died. He's the king who reigns, and he is the innocent one who died. Now, throughout this whole story, Mark hammers home repeatedly the innocence of Jesus. And we saw the innocence of Jesus spotlighted in brief during his religious trial. And you'll remember that scene. Um, They tried to concoct charges, accusations against him. None of the stories matched up. Nothing was accurate. There were no charges found against Jesus. But now in his civil trial, Mark reminds us of the innocence of Jesus over and over again. I want to walk through the passage with you and highlight these moments. And it starts in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. Now, as a reader of Mark, you know that the decision they make is a nonsense decision. 
There is no viable verdict against Jesus. We know coming out of chapter 14, Jesus is innocent of any charges they bring against him. The only charge that really gets them all frothy at the mouth is a charge of blasphemy. But we know Jesus didn't commit blasphemy in that trial scene. And regardless, even if he had, Rome isn't going to kill someone over what they perceive as a religious crime. Blasphemy is not a capital offense in Rome's kingdom. So they reach a decision. In other words, we've got our story, and we're going to go to Pilate, and we're going to force him to kill Jesus. The innocence of Jesus is on display from the very beginning. Verse 2, Jesus with Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say, Jesus replied. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So Jesus makes no reply. Why? He doesn't have to defend himself against nonsense claims. And it's the silence of Jesus that further testifies to his innocence. Over and over again, we see the innocence of Jesus. Going down to verse 9, Pilate asks the crowd, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate knew these were concocted charges. He knew Jesus was only there because the rulers were envious of him. He knew Jesus was not guilty of what he was accused of. Jesus is innocent. Going down to verse 12, Pilate asks the crowd again, he says, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? So again, Pilate himself asserts the innocence of Jesus. He finds nothing guilty in him. There's no wrongdoing by Jesus. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Pilate asks, what wrong has he done? And the mob yells, crucify him. They don't answer the question. Because there's not an answer to be given. He's totally innocent in this moment. And then finally, verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. So Pilate made his choice in order to appease the crowd and to save his own skin. Pilate would have no problem killing an innocent peasant if it meant that his rule would be secured and okay. So over and over again, the innocence of Jesus is put before us in this scene. But just as Jesus is a king of a different degree, so too he is innocent to a different degree. You see, Jesus isn't merely just innocent in Pilate's court or in the religious court. Jesus is innocent in God's court. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, he's more than just innocent, he is holy. And Scripture tells us he's more than just holy, he's holy, holy. And he's not just holy, holy. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. That's the degree of his innocence. He is fully, completely set apart, unlike us in every way. So why is it a big deal that Jesus is fully innocent at his death? Well, it's a big deal because that's the only way salvation has ever worked in God's economy. If we were to go way back in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 4 gives us instructions for how to offer an animal sacrifice in order to pay for our sin. 
So sin requires a death payment in our place. God provides this sacrificial system, uh, and we can use bulls and goats and lambs as appropriate sacrifices. But there's one detail repeated over and over again in Leviticus chapter 4 that describes what those animal sacrifices have to be like. The detail is this. The animal must be spotless, without defect. Over and over again, that's the requirement. A spotless sacrifice. Bring your goat, bring your bull, bring your lamb, Whatever you bring, it has to be spotless for the sacrifice to count. Well, Jesus takes the place of bulls and goats and lambs. Jesus, the sinless, holy, God the Son, shed his blood so that you might be saved fully and completely from the penalty of your sin. He is the ultimate once and for all sacrifice. A few years after this scene in Mark chapter 15, Peter, the denier, Peter, the restored one, he would write these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Sinless, holy, 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 innocent God the Son who died in our place. So what are the implications of the sinless Son of God, the Holy One, dying for me. They are many. But for one, the holiness of Jesus speaks to the power of salvation. That the sinless Son of God, God the Son in the flesh, comes and dies in our place, speaks of the robustness, the power, the effectiveness of salvation. Uh, Bulls and goats and lambs, that, that effectiveness only reached so far, only did so much Jesus, the power of the salvation he brings, exceeds those animals and everything else. And so you might evaluate yourself as being far from God, and that might be right. And you might think, not only am I far, I am too far. There's no way he's bringing me back. I'm telling you, if the sinless son of God comes to save you, there's nothing that can keep you away. That salvation is powerful. It is effective. And listen to me, sister. Listen to me, brother. If he holds you, he never lets go of you. Never. It's a powerful salvation. Not only that, but if if the sinless Son of God is the sacrifice for me, then it speaks to your value to him. We don't talk about this a lot because it feels kind of arrogant and prideful. But the the clear record of Scripture is that you are loved this way. And we know the love of God in this way that Christ laid down his life for us. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says this, that we are bought by the blood of Christ. So when we speak of our value to him, it's not to puff us up and make us a big deal. It's rather to humble us and to remind us of his incredible love and to call us to love him as well. How amazing that the sinless Son of God would love a sinner like me. I want to follow that man. I want to give my life to that God. I, I, want, to, I want the salvation that he brings. I want to trust in him. Mark's giving us these pictures today. Jesus is a king who reigns. He's the innocent one who dies. The third and final picture 
Jesus is the substitute who saves. He's the substitute who saves. Mark writes this story with some explanation in it for the benefit of readers in uh, 2019. In verse 6, look at it with me. Uh, he says, it was the custom at the feast, that means the feast of the Passover season, it was the custom at that time to release a prisoner whom the people requested. So a little bit of Passover clemency. Uh, at Thanksgiving, our president pardons a turkey. At Passover, Pilate pardons a criminal. The criminal in question is a man named Barabbas. We don't know a lot about Barabbas, but we know enough. We know that he's an insurrectionist. That he has stirred people up and fought against Roman power. We also know that he is a murderer. There's no question that Barabbas is guilty of the crimes he's accused of. And death surely awaits him for his crimes against Rome. And Pilate's back and forth with the mob in this moment is really interesting. Look at verse 9 with me. Pilate, I think he's looking for a way to get Jesus off the hook, to release Jesus. So in verse 9 he says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. In this scene, Jesus takes Barabbas' guilt. And he takes his condemnation and he takes his lashes, and he takes his cross. And Jesus took my pride, and he took my rebellion, and he took my lies, and he took my anger, and he took my disbelief, and Jesus took my cross also. Barabbas is a living picture of salvation, He's like a living parable. Jesus takes his death and Barabbas receives Jesus' life. There's a great exchange that took place on that day. And there's a great exchange that takes place when anyone trusts in Jesus for their salvation. Oftentimes when we talk about the forgiveness of Jesus, we'll use this little metaphor. We'll say, well, Jesus wipes the slate clean. My slate clean. And there's some truth in that. We got mucky slates and Jesus when he forgives us washes us whiter than snow that's biblical language it makes for good hymns and there's truth in that but there's a limitation to that metaphor because here's the deal what would you do if you had a clean slate five seconds later you're dunking that thing in mud (laughs) because we are by nature objects of wrath we are sinners to the core Salvation does not mean Jesus wipes the slate clean and then sets you back at the starting line to see how you're going to do this time because you will fail. That's not salvation. Salvation is this. You've got 
a sin-filled slate. And Jesus has a holy, 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 righteousness-filled slate. Salvation is this. Jesus takes the punishment that your sin requires. And you receive the blessing that his holiness receives. That's salvation. When you stand before God in judgment for your soul, you will be evaluated not based on your works, but based on the works of Christ. That's the standard. You will be judged. Are you holy, holy, holy? And the only way you are is not by climbing that mountain yourself, but by wearing the holiness of Christ like a blanket. And it covers you head to toe. And you stand before God and he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that is well done, my good and faithful servant, when you are covered by the blood of Christ. That's salvation. Salvation means he takes your punishment. You get his life. He takes your death. You get his eternity. He takes your sin. You get his holiness. Paul would describe it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's your substitute who saves. He dies in your place and gives you eternal life when you trust in him. So this morning in Mark 15, we've been given these three different life-changing pictures of Jesus. He's the king who reigns. He's the innocent one who died. And he's the substitute for our sins, the substitute who saves. And what is it that's life-changing about these particular pictures? Well, what's life-changing is this. They are clear evidence of God's love for you. When we read Mark 15, we see God bringing salvation to us. We see God descending, condescending, lowering himself for our salvation. It's the love of God that changes us from the inside out. Pilate stood face to face with love on that day. He heard of his kingship. He knew of his innocence. He had all the information and still didn't believe. Pilate's story is a tragedy. He has everything the world would say makes one successful, but he forfeited his soul. Jesus stands before you today, like he did before Pilate. But you have a far more complete picture of Jesus than Pilate did. You get all the information that Pilate had, plus the knowledge that Jesus did die at the cross and he rose again three days later and you have seen him ascend to the Father and promise to return. You've seen all Pilate saw and more, but this time around, unlike Pilate, you don't ask the question, Jesus asked the question. And the question is this, am I your king? Let's pray together. Lord God, we know that whether or not we would answer that you are our king, you are the king. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not a truth that depends 
on our acknowledging it. It just is true. And along with that truth is your undeniable love for your people. Love shown in deed, not just spoken of in word or living in philosophical uh, thoughts. It is, it's a love of action. So thank you, Father, for loving us in this way, sending your Son to die in our place for our sin, that we might have everlasting life. Lord God, this morning, would you open the eyes of my friends in here that have been trying to make their own way, keep that slate clean on their own, rely on their own religious deeds. Father, awaken faith in them today. Give them rest as they trust in Jesus Christ, who died in their place and lives evermore. Bring salvation to that one. God, I ask for my brothers and sisters in here that you would show us how to live with King Jesus at the center of our lives. We are easily swayed by temptation and sin. We often put ourselves on that throne. But Lord God, let us walk in the glory of the King of our salvation leading the way. Thank you for what you have done for us. It's not something we asked for. We didn't ask for salvation. We didn't plead with you to come and make a way. But you have shown your love for us in this. So thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for a sacrifice. Thank you for a salvation that is robust and true and holds us and saves everyone who believes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.